Hello everyone, welcome to another Lab News podcast. Thank you very much for being here. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm in the mood for a bit of a party. And what are the things you need for a good party? Well, music and of course, booze, which is why it's a jolly good thing that in today's episode, we're going to learn all about musical rats and why it is that science makes the best gin. I would say, I don't know, I'm biased, but I would say if it's a good yeah. gin, and I, I did buy some more of it as well um, for my personal consumption. So, Stick around to find out what all that was about later on in the episode. But for now, this. Yes, one of the world's most recognisable tunes there. And if it is your birthday today or soon, then happy birthday. But I wonder, how happy would you be if this version was sung to you over your birthday cake? Or perhaps even worse, this version. I dare say you would at best be confused and at worst be mildly angered. And that's because they're just wrong, aren't they? We've got an exquisite detection system for both melody and rhythm. And the final two versions there had either the correct melody with the wrong rhythm. That was the second version. Or the final version had the correct rhythm but no melody at all. So what is all this about and why am I playing you broken little ditties? Well, it turns out that our finely honed sense of musical integrity, be that melody or rhythm, might not be unique to humankind. Rhythm in particular could have very deep evolutionary roots, which is why one researcher from the Aras University in Denmark, Alexandra Selmer Merales, found himself playing the tune of Happy Birthday to a collection of rats. So what was going on and why was he doing this? Alexander, over to you. So the, the thing is that uh, we want to understand how we evolve our musical cognition and to see what things are common also with other animals. And to look at that, you are looking to a mammal, but it's a long distance mammal to see what was present there. Okay, so Alexander is studying rats. No real surprise there. They are, after all, a laboratory favourite. And he wants to understand if they possess some of the characteristics we do in terms of recognition of music. Now, along with his supervisor, based at the Centre for Brain and Cognition in Spain, Juan Manuel Toro, it led to the brilliantly titled paper Non-Human Animals Detect the Rhythmic Structure of a Familiar Tune. In this case, of course, happy birthday. Yes, everyone knows these songs. And also because it has the eight tones of the scale part of the song, has all the musical notes. Okay then, so tune selected, happy birthday it is. Who knew it was so musically diverse? But it's probably worth reminding ourselves what rhythm actually is. So it's how sounds are organised over time. And we want to focus on this. If they can discriminate the organisation of the sound over time. Because it's fundamental for music, dance, even for speech. So. Okay, so far, so good. But there's one burning question at the moment, isn't there? An elephant in the room, or maybe a rat in the corner, if you will. How do you get a collection of rodents to recognise human music at all? The answer to that, of course, will be familiar to all in vivo scientists. It comes down to familiarisation and conditioning. In the paradigm we use, 
for this study. We took tribes and and we familiarized them with the song. So for two, three, four weeks, they only were listening to the song 10 minutes every day, 40 times the song. And every time that there was food reward, so the rats got a milk sugar pellet. Yep, that's right. Like so many other experiments based on conditioned animals, the key to their heart is a treat. Once Alexandra had familiarised his rats to the tune of Happy Birthday and given them a milk reward every time they listened to it, they associated the reward with that tune. Now the team were very much off to the races. In response to a known stimulus, i.e. the Happy Birthday tune, the rats had a distinct behaviour. They went for their milky treats. At this point, Alexandra could play these familiarised rats, the two broken versions of Happy Birthday that we heard before. So just to remind ourselves, that was one with the same rhythm but no melody, which sounded like this. And one with the same melody but different rhythmical structure, which sounded like this. Now, whichever one they reacted to in the same manner that they reacted to the full Happy Birthday tune could potentially tell Alexandra something about the way the rats perceive auditory information. And so, well, what was the result? Drum roll, please. It is all about the rhythm, baby. It turns out the rats reacted in exactly the same manner to the one with the standard rhythm but no melody as they would do to the normal song. This suggests that the rats base their discrimination of the various different songs played to them based on rhythm rather than melody. And good news for all the drummers out there, this suggests that the cognitive ability to recognise rhythm has very, very deep evolutionary roots. However, given the distinct lack of rodent-based drummers and dancers in the world, what exactly are they using this cognitive ability for? They have, they have communication, vocalizations, and they are very rhythmic. So they may be using rhythmic cognition, they may be processing to detect and recognize the vocalizations they have. So this cognitive ability that rats have to pick up on rhythmical structure is actually very important for their own vocalisations. Although it has to be said, it seems distinctly unlikely that they use those vocalisations to wish each other happy birthday. Now, just before we move on, it will probably come as no surprise to find out that Alexandra is also a musician as well as a cognitive neuroscientist. He plays the violin. So, of course, I wasn't going to let him get away without sending us in a small sample of him playing. Here he is performing La Font by Edouard Toldra. Absolutely beautiful. Thanks very much for that, Alexandra. Okay, so that's the music dealt with for our party episode. Now we need some libation to really get things going. So it's time to move on to the booze. And what better booze than gin? But how on earth do we get booze into a science podcast? Time to meet my friend Duncan. 
Yeah, my name's Duncan Rose. I work with analytics. I've been with the company 15 years now. I'm the product manager for the milestone range, which is to do with the microwave chemistry. We're very much classed as sample preparation and front end for the analytical um, techniques um, in the chemical and life science industries. Yes, so analytics based here in the UK make lots of very impressive widgets ordinarily used by the scientific community. And one of the things they make is a microwave extraction system. Now, one of the things this system's really good at is pulling something specific out of a really complex mixture, especially an organic mixture. And it is this that has pricked up the ears of not just the science community, but also those of gin distillers. We're very much across a chromatography sector and an elemental sector, but the, the this sort of natural product extraction with the gin is a little bit left field for us, really. It's something that's not the people we would typically supply to. Um, we're very much into industry and academia, whereas this is, uh, is, is a totally different ball game. Yeah, so scientific equipment manufacturers the world over are always looking for new applications for their clever bits of kit. But this is certainly the tastiest application I've ever heard of for a bit of kit normally used in sample preparation. Now, earlier in the year, analytics were kind enough to send me a bottle of their gin made using their sample extraction microwave system. And so if you'll just bear with me one moment... Mm, genuinely lovely, actually, I have to say. So thank you very much for that, Duncan. If my speech does get a bit slurry in a moment, then don't worry. It's just me getting slowly drunk as I record this podcast. But before I collapse on the floor, we should probably find out a little bit more about this. So how on earth did analytics get into this field in the first place? Gin really was. We, we found um, an area with this product that we have called the Ethos X, which was developed mainly for the fragrance industry. So they were looking at getting out the, the fragrance. So from the, the way you get the fragrance is to take the essential oil out of a uh, botanical, okay? So the essential oil gives you a really fragrant, a really concentrated version of whatever it is. So if you're trying to get um, lemon as a scent flavor, you want the essential oil from the lemon. So we've, we don't have a particularly big fragrance market in the UK compared to France. So it, it's a product that we've had in our portfolio for a long time, but it's never something until we started working with a guy in Northern Ireland um, about actually transferring this to the gin industry. So from sample prep to gin distillation, and for all those that have noticed just how many different types of gin there are around at the moment, you can see that this was a pretty shrewd move. Gin, maybe sort of five to eight years ago, really started to, to take off. And there was this explosion in the UK of uh, local distilleries. So we're, we're in a unique situation globally um, that the UK has over 300 distilleries um, that, are, that are making gin. Now, these guys, the smaller organizations than the likes of Bacardi, uh, Gordon's, like th those guys that have been making traditional gin if you like for, for for eternity that these local guys are all looking to use something that's close to them to make it unique so um with that comes um 
quite an expense really for them to have to set up a distillery with your traditional copper stills because they they range in sizes some are very small but if you want them to get onto big production they are very costly so it's not always viable for people to um want to have them have the, the the space to have them so a lot of people were looking at different ways of making gin so one of them is to do what's called compounding um, instead of doing a single pot throw everything in they will take different essences or different botanicals and they will add them at different stages now that's really where we come in so when we're not hitting the the big the big scale we're not trying to replace copper stills what we're trying to do is to offer um one to be able to be very efficient with the way they do in extraction two to save space and with that they're obviously saving money and the environmental impact is that they're using a very low power system compared to what a copper still would take um, but also to offer them flexibility really in terms of um experimenting and, and this is this was probably the part that i never appreciate is that Distillers don't always see themselves as chemists. They see themselves as somebody that's making alcohol in a, in a lot of cases. There's, there's been a big overlap recently where we're seeing more chemists get into that area because distillation um, is the sort of crux of chemistry. They're doing a hydro distillation with our microwave. So we started to see an area that we could move into um, to help these smaller distilleries have a greater control over what they can produce and how they can produce it. Okay, so there was a problem and analytics found a really nifty solution to it. And speaking of the solution, obviously we're talking about microwave extraction here. But if you're imagining a new future as a gin distiller using the microwave in the corner of your kitchen, I'm afraid that's not quite going to happen. Um, I mean, the, the ones that we use are 70 litre cavities, so they are substantially bigger than um, the commercial of the self microwaves. And it's really having the, the, the temperature distribution and the control is one of the things other than the size that sets it apart from a kitchen type microwave. Um, you, one, you need the space to have these bigger reactors in there, but smaller microwaves, the, the reason why they have turntables in them um, when you're putting in your mashed potato or whatever you're putting in there is because you're trying to move the uh, what you're trying to heat through the microwave energy. Because if you just stick it static in there, there's a very high chance that some of it will heat up and some of it won't. Taking that back to what we're doing, we've uh, developed a, a diffuser system inside the microwave, which will help to angle the microwaves throughout a large cavity. Rather than just sitting suspended, they will be mingled around that cavity to, to offer good distribution. But what we've designed for the distillation, we have a feedback loop of water that comes straight down the middle of the the botanicals in the reactor what does is that helps to distribute as well because you're having the moisture coming back down the middle which water will heat and interact with microwaves and then you get in the microwave energy which will be heating from the sides as well that allows us this um this greater sort of control over the process which you would never be able to get from a, a kitchen microwave okay mental note never joke with a microwave chemist about quote just using the one in your kitchen end quote this is a serious business no messing allowed in truth though this really is a serious business as duncan mentioned earlier there are many many distillers in the country so what exactly can they use this microwave system for if you are looking to do a seasonal gin 
okay? You can only make that at certain times of the year because your voice might only bloom at certain times of the year, okay? So you've only got a small window where you can make that gin. So we can, because we're extracting the essential oil from, let's just say, um, a cherry, for example. If we can get the essential oil of a cherry out using our distillation process, because we are getting such a pure and concentrated version, we need very small amounts of it to actually um, create the flavor profile. So if we had, and we freeze that, we can now keep that basically all year round. So they can start to take small fractions of that essential oil and add it to their gin. So they, they can now make their seasonal gin an all round, all year round gin. Um, because not all of these people have 20 different gins that they make. They might only have two or three. So if you've only got one gin that you can make three months of the year, then business-wise, the, the viability is obviously um, limiting for you. Um, we've also got the fact that other constituents in there, like juniper, for example. So every gin has to have juniper in. So juniper is readily available in the UK, and the, these guys will get them um, from local areas a lot of the time. But juniper is one of the ones that we've found has given us a really good yield when we perform it in the microwave. We can get out sort of 1% to 3% yield, which 1% to 3% doesn't sound a lot, but the, the volume fraction that we're getting off of this juniper can be enough to um, reduce the amount of juniper required by 8 to 10 times from a traditional still. So this really could be a boon in efficiency for gin producers then. But why is it that microwaves are so much more efficient than the traditional way of doing things? If you were doing juniper um, in a pot still, so in, in a big, large copper pot, you would put in maybe a kilogram of juniper into there. But because of the way that the essential oil is trapped in juniper, you get very small yield coming out of it because the, the juniper berries are, are obviously wild berries. So they're, they're, their natural design is to keep that essential oil in. So it's quite a skin on the berry. So when you start to heat it up, you don't get all of the essential oil out when you're just doing it in a copper still. So what we do is we will take the, the same kilogram of juniper, we will crush it up a little bit in there. And then with our process, we're relying only on the microwave interaction and the in-situ moisture within the, the material. So the, the technique is, is much more effective because it's a direct form of heating with microwaves. So the microwaves will interact with water, so they're, they're polar. So the microwaves will come in, they will start to heat up uh, the water inside of the, the, the berry or the botanical, whatever we use. And essentially what we're doing there is to rupture these little cells that contain the essential oil. So the microwaves are going in and heat and rupturing that cell to release the oil. And the way our system works is that the reactor that does that is inside the microwave, but then we have um, a clavenger set up outside of the microwave that allows the distillation to occur. So we heat, basically rupture the cells, and then we evaporate the water with the oil outside of the microwave and then there's a separating funnel on the side of it so one microwaves are great because they are direct unlike doing it in a copper still where you have to heat the copper that then heats the the ethanol or the grain spirit that then heats the the botanicals we're going direct straight into the the botanical we're not using any solvents 
within there. So it, it's a much a cleaner, greener process. It's more cost effective as well because you're not having to um, do this distillation in the ethanol. And that is a, a huge expense um, for these distillers to, to face is, is the, the ethanol or the, the, the wheat grain cost, essentially. Um, so we've also got a much higher concentration that we will get out. All very well and good in theory. The proof is very much in the tasting. So does this system actually work to make really nice gin? There is only really one way to find out, which is why Analytics worked with a local distiller to produce gin not made from a traditional method using stills, but using the essential oil they had extracted using the microwave extraction system. So was it any good? I'm not being biased, but it is one. Of, it is a very nice gin. It's been really good feedback. When we actually did taste tests of it, we took his normal gin, the way you'd make it with juniper. Then we took it with our juniper essence in, and then we did another one with a couple of different flavors that we'd extracted um, because we were looking at Halloween themes at that time. So we'd looked at sort of like butternut squash and so on and so forth. And we did a blind taste test with everybody, and everybody picked the one with our juniper in. And it's because the the juniper provides so much of the, the the sort of the flavor profile and it was i think because there was probably more of it in there than you would normally get in a gin it just had a, a, a different taste to it it was really nice and, and the other gins were, were really good but everybody picked that one and that they, it was because of that they could they could get that different taste profile from it i, I would say i don't know i'm biased but i would say that it's a good yeah. gin and i i did buy some more of it as well um, for my personal consumption so yeah, roger that, Duncan. I'm still drinking mine and I can confirm it is rather delicious. So this does beg the question then, given the application of science to a traditionally artisanal process has been so successful, will this see the back of the old ways of doing things? But it, it's, it's, not to, it's not to replace the, the whole gin process of copper stills and, and all of this. It's, it's not to get rid of that. It's to really supplement the, the growing need of us as the consumer of gin like people want different gin all the time they're constantly looking for different gin so to do that these guys have got to think of different ways of doing it and that's where the microwave fits in absolutely perfectly okay brilliant stuff and on that note i think the time has come to end because i have drunk too much gin to carry on talking about the production of gin so thank you so much for listening and i will speak to you next time 